Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So if we can't get America off our fossil fuel addiction with, you know, actual legislation that would do so, if we can't pull that one off, can we decarbonize the planet by administrative action? Are there other ways that we can do this? Frank Deline is with us, the creator of the Iceman Carbon Factor Index, the author of Decarbonize the World, Solving the Climate Crisis While Increasing Profits in Your Business, and president of CEO Telemark. Frank Deline, D-A-L-E-N-E dot com is his website, and Frank Deline is his Twitter handle. Frank, welcome to the program. Tell me about the uh, using the Securities and Exchange Commission to decarbonize the American economy. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, sure. I'm familiar with the reporting to the SEC. I was the CFO of a publicly traded company for about five years. I wrote the 10Qs, 10Ks, the MDNAs. And one of the items that is addressed in those filings is the risks that a business may have. And it could be include everything from the economy to even, you know, what we just went through with COVID. Right. So, so these are things um, that, that publicly traded companies have to disclose to their stockholders. In other words. Absolutely. And I saw this coming for a while. I saw activist investors requiring their boards to identify what these risks are mm-hmm. and. The system I developed, it can be very instrumental in in reporting these greenhouse gas numbers. And it's a market-driven mechanism that measures the current footprint of all manufactured products all the way down the supply chain to where the natural resource comes out of the ground. And then what I do is I mathematically convert that to an indexing system from one to 100. So it's easy to understand for the consumer. Mm-hmm. And then we can put a label label on that packaging uh, of those products to indicate what that carbon footprint is. So this would be like the, uh, the label on refrigerators when you're shopping or on stoves that talk about their efficiency. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and it's just like you know ingredients in a you know any anything that that foods that you buy. Right, how much um, sugar is in it? Yeah. Yeah, um, and the more you can educate the consumer, you know, now the consumer can make a decision based on that, right? So, uh, if everything is equal, you know, the the uh, educated consumer will pick the product that has a lower carbon footprint because everybody's being concerned. Everybody's very concerned right now with the crisis that's uh, climate change is, is coming. Right. So the reality at the moment is that corporations don't have to disclose or even calculate their carbon footprint. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission, at least with regard to publicly traded companies, which is a small minority of companies in America, but you know, represents a large chunk of the American economy, that the Security and Exchange Commission theoretically has the power to require companies to disclose their carbon footprint. And you're arguing that your particular index that you've invented should be the mechanism by which they do so. Do I have that right? Yeah, more than that, actually. Um, I've, I've met with the EPA uh, to implement, because I know that government's going to want to get involved in the system I develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they're willing to form a public-private partnership with me to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And they told me that they are already requiring larger corporations to uh, report their carbon footprint. 
the smaller companies are are on a voluntary basis, but they are requiring that. So companies are already starting to do that. And if they're a global company doing business in Europe, you know, where cap and trade is adopted, they would be doing the same there too. So uh, corporations are uh, used to this at this point. Um, and a lot of them, believe it or not, are, have made goals to become carbon neutral. So, oh, yeah, I know, and particularly some yeah. of the tech companies. Now, reporting to your stockholders is a whole completely different, entirely different thing from labeling your product, essentially, uh, particularly in the context of your advertising, for example. We require pharmaceutical ads to talk about the primary side effects. And so you hear these ads, and you know, uh, buy, buy uh, Trump via, and by the way, at the very end, it says, oh, and might cause, you know, and, uh, your hair fall out. Right. Or whatever, um, right. so but but you know, the, the, there's a relatively small number of stock. Fewer than ten percent of Americans hold stock, and even those who do mostly hold it through mutual funds and things like that, where they wouldn't or ETFs, where they wouldn't probably be getting these disclosures. And sometimes those disclosures are you know little booklets full of uh, you know information. So what you're suggesting is that. Because it's not the Securities and Exchange Commission that requires food products to say how much sugar is in them. That's, uh, I believe, the, the, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How would the labeling, this labeling, translate from individual companies being required to disclose their their uh, their carbon footprint to their stockholders into having to disclose their carbon footprint in advertising, like with pharmaceuticals? or to consumers like with food products. Yeah, um, and you know, in the beginning of, of I mean, this, the system I developed measures that carbon footprint, right? So that's the beginning of it. So, and then, you know, it measures all the way down to supply chain and adds all of that up. So, um, you know, what the SEC is requiring uh, is also their suppliers to report what their greenhouse gases is. It's really difficult to push this from the top down, right? Mm -hmm. So the system I developed starts from where the natural resource comes out of the ground and wherever a human hand touches it, wherever it's transported, whatever happens to it, uh, and it's further developed all the way to where that product is manufactured. And not only all of that, but what what the carbon emissions are in the manufacturing process. No, I, I get all this, Frank. Yeah. My, my question is, you know, your your uh, pitch uh, to us essentially was uh, the SEC, you know, if we can get the SEC to require this as a disclosure to stockholders, that'd be a really cool thing. And what I'm saying is, you know, stockholders, by and large, you know, that that doesn't that means that it it will simply never reach the general public. There's thousands of stockholder disclosures that happen all the time that, you know, even stockholders pay no attention to. How do we get this into the general public? How do we get this into the mix? Are you, are you talking to I mean, I don't know that there's an agency analogous to the way the you know USDA oversees food or the FDA oversees pharmaceuticals that that regulates things like. Uh, well, I guess all manufactured products or all products in this context or the carbon footprint associated with them. Should we create another agency or is there some agency that already has that authority? Or I mean, or, or uh, are you assuming that some sort of natural process will happen once the SEC requires that sort of disclosure? Well, you know, like I said before, the EPA is, is already you know, leading on this. So they're already requiring these disclosures from. So these it would be companies. the Environmental Protection Agency. That could yeah, I, I, I would assume that. Yeah. Are, and, the, are uh, the are the labels on refrigerators EPA labels? Is that have they are they mandating that or is it a is it one of the consumer protection uh, organizations within the federal government? Yeah, that is that is EPA. That's Energy Star. Right. right. So those are Energy Star labels um, and those those are required by the EPA. So the EPA does have the authority then, in theory anyway, to do this sort of thing. Right. And that's why I'm I'm seeing them actually to help me implement, you know, this system, right. which would which would be a standardized system. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Frank Deline, uh, creator of the Iceman Carbon Factor Index, author of Decarbonize the World. Frank Deline, D-A-L-E-N-E on Twitter. Frank, thanks for dropping by and, and FrankDeline.com too. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, good talking to you. Back with the UN chief calling for extreme weather warning systems. This stuff is getting real. And your calls.
The Guardian has this fascinating article about how the UN climate chief, Antonio Gutierrez, or the UN chief, the Secretary General of the United Nations, says that the entire planet should be covered by early warning systems within five years. Just think about that for a minute. You know, I I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in, in Lansing, Michigan. And we would have tornadoes come through periodically. I remember when one took out the, uh, the home of a family that lived a few miles from us. We drove over to look at it. And it was just, I was, I was a little kid at the time, maybe eight or nine. And I was just shocked by the devastation of that tornado. And, you know, we would have tornado alerts and we'd go down in the basement. It was rare. It was very rare, in fact. I, I can only remember a few of them when I was a kid. But it happened. But, and, and so, you know, when you live in the tornado belt, and I'm not sure Michigan is in the tornado belt as much as, you know, for example, Kansas, but when you live in the, in the tornado belt, you, you, you get, kind of get used to having early warning systems. But now, with weather wilding, as a consequence of, of all the carbon pollution that we have poured into the atmosphere and continue to pour into the atmosphere, I mean, we're pouring carbon into the atmosphere now at a faster rate than we were a decade or two decades or three or four decades ago. It has picked up rather than slowed down. And so now you've got, you know, only about a third of the, of, of the people around the world are covered by some kind of early warning system. And what Gutierrez is suggesting is that everybody should be because no place is immune anymore. It might not be tornadoes. It might be wildfires. It might not be wildfires. It might be like we had in Oregon last year, three, three consecutive days of 116 degree weather. And you know, people who were sleeping outside were dying. We had, we had a couple hundred deaths here in, here in the Pacific Northwest as a consequence of that heat wave, that heat dome, which came about because the jet stream is breaking down. The jet stream is breaking down because the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest of the you know, than the mid-latitudes, and it's, it's breaking down the jet stream, and so we're getting wild weather patterns here. And so here, here come, he says, it's unacceptable that, that so many people are still not covered by early warning systems. He said, we must invest equally in adaptation and resiliency. That includes the information that allows us to anticipate storms, heat waves, floods, and droughts. He says that covering the global population with such warnings would only cost about one and a half billion dollars. Keep in mind, we just passed a budget that gave the Pentagon $29 billion more than Joe Biden asked for to to secure the planet with early warning systems would cost one and a half billion dollars. A senior U.N. official goes on to say it won't be easy, it'll be challenging, but when one looks at the potential cost of mobilizing the resources to make this a reality, it's a mere fraction, a mere rounding error of the $14 trillion mobilized by G20 countries over the last two years to recover their economies from COVID-19. And whether it's wildfires in California or floods in the southeast, or I'm just talking about the United States, obviously this is happening all over the planet. But having access to these early warning systems, they say, will save lives, will save money, will increase the resilience of our planet. And it's a great story. You can check it out on The Guardian. So, picking up your phone calls, Nelson in Oceano, California. Hey, Nelson, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for uh, picking up. I saw a documentary about uh, the National Prayer Breakfast, uh, the family, and the fact that every president since Eisenhower has gone to it. And Tatas to Co and those people who are in the invisible power. Yeah. What's their agenda? Because I think that's where we're going to end up. If you their, their agenda is pretty clearly theocracy. Yeah. But ruled by the preachers and everybody else's. What they claim is Jesus is not a holy man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, if if you're I, for people who don't know what Nelson and I are talking about. There is a great series on Netflix called The Family. Uh, Jeff Charlotte uh, uh, produced it. It's based on his book, The Family. I'm in it, actually. And it's, uh, it's just shocking. 
I mean, you know, what what these guys have created since the 1950s, this this theocratic infrastructure that and they they own this house, this uh, row house on on E Street in Washington, D.C., where a whole bunch of Republicans live. They give them, you know, subsidized housing in exchange for uh, apparently, you know, promoting the interests of the family or just I, mean, I, I doubt there's even a quid pro quo, but, you know, just on the assumption that they will. So, uh, you know, it's it's go ahead. Frank. Pardon? That is their their philosophy about the invisible power structure and that they don't want anybody to know who they are, even though they're hiding in plain sight, uh, is frightening to me. But uh, Vietnam vet, I gave up on a lot of things a long time ago. I was just wanted to mention that the spiritual leader of the Republican Party ought to be Vince McMahon. They're the WWE. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah, McMahon, whose uh, wife was in Trump's cabinet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The they're, worldwide all wrestling. Stuff is based on uh, WWE stuff. You know, they don't have to <laughs> be true or honest. They just have to make noise. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. Nelson, Nelson I, I, I totally get it. And, and, and you said it very well. Thank you. Kent in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Kent, what's up? Yeah, I was just wondering. Have you been following this Evan Newman character? Is that the guy who went to Ukraine to fight? He ended up in Belarus. Oh, the guy who went to Belarus and got sanctuary because the January 6th prosecutors were going after him. Yeah, but he went over there over a year ago or just about a year ago. Yeah, I saw the news story yesterday. He was just officially granted sanctuary, right? Yeah, just yesterday, but then I'm reading he also, the U.S. authorities say he took part in the Ukraine 2004 Orange Revolution. Who is this guy? That's weird. I have no idea, Kent, but it's worth checking out. Kent, thanks for the, oh thanks, thanks for the heads up on that. I'll have to look a little deeper. I, I only read, I, I confess, I read the headline in the first couple paragraphs of the story about him getting asylum in Belarus and thought, Oh, geez, you know, another American traitor. There he goes. I'll have to read the rest of the article. We'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. A couple things I wanted to point out to you. The first is Germany has vowed to end their dependence on Russian gas by 2024 and really to get out of this business by the end of this year. This is fascinating. The pipeline from Siberia to Europe was built in 1984. It was built during the Reagan administration. And, And at that time, it was not Russia. It was the Soviet Union. And at that time, weirdly, the decision, most of the decision about whether to build this pipeline fell to the United States, even though it was Europe. I mean, you know, we, we, we played an outsized role in this. And the Reagan, and there's, there's a great piece in the, in the Financial Times about this today, or uh, maybe it's the New York Times, the deal book. But in any case, it's one of these two. Um, the, the Reagan administration and American corporations, fossil fuel companies, were lobbying heavily in favor of this. And the American Central Intelligence Agency came out and warned the Reagan administration and the Europeans. At that time, there was no European Union. 
uh, warned the Europeans that this would be a big mistake. You don't want to do this. You will become dependent on Russian fossil fuels, and that's not a healthy thing. Or on Soviet, back in, back in the day, it was Soviet. But Reagan was gung-ho for it, and the corporations were gung-ho for it, and they prevailed, and so there's this pipeline. Well, Germany now is saying enough. Uh, this is from the uh, Financial Times this morning, uh, FT.com. Uh, James Polity in Warsaw, Sam Fleming in Brussels, and Erica Solomon in Berlin uh, writing, Berlin vowed to all but wean itself off Russian gas by mid-2024 and said it aimed to become, quote, virtually independent, end quote, of Russian oil by the end of this year. Uh, now, the way that they're going to be able to do this is because uh, President Biden has said that the United States is going to deliver at least 15 billion cubic meters of additional liquefied natural gas to the EU. And this is where it gets kind of dicey. Our supplying liquefied natural gas to, to Europe to replace the Russian gas is not going to have a massive impact on the climate in and of itself. It's, you know, natural gas is natural gas. It's slightly more climate intensive because it has to be transported that long distance and because there is energy used in the process of converting natural gas into a liquid. Uh, it has to be super pressurized and then maintained under pressure and all that kind of stuff. So, so it's not as efficient as just actually using gas coming out of a pipeline. But it's nowhere near as bad as using oil or coal in particular. The problem is not that we're going to supply them with the gas. The problem is that in order to supply them with the gas, we are going to have to very quickly build some really substantial LNG export facilities. And again, in and of itself, that's not going to contribute to climate change substantially outside of just, you know, the normal activity of building things. But the concern is that once you've built it, it will be used long after it's no longer needed. I mean, these will be facilities that are being built in many cases with government money or government support or government subsidies, but that are typically owned by private for-profit corporations you got private for-profit corporations shipping the oil around the world, you know, provide, or the uh, liquefied natural gas um, corporations in America doing this sort of thing. So this is the debate that is shaping up, uh, to the extent that you could call it a debate, because it's really a done deal. I mean, Biden went over and said, yes, we're going to do this. And, but, you know, when you hear American climate activists saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is what they're talking about is this construction of new infrastructure this this it's it's like we're taking another step forward for fossil fuels and that of course you know is not a good thing for the planet now that said germany is and and the rest of europe they're just going all in on getting off fossil fuels i mean they're 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 absolutely going going all in on this and there's talk about moving up the dates uh, norway for example said that uh, at the end of this decade it's illegal to sell a car in norway that a new car in Norway that, is, uh, that has a fossil fuel-based engine. All cars must be electric. Um, Norway is not unique in that. There are a couple of other countries that are on board with that. They've, they have different, uh, you know, Dubai dates. But uh, expect to see a lot more of that sort of thing happening. And also home heating systems. And this is where Bill McKibben's 350.org, you know, they've got this program that they're talking about, about having the government subsidize the manufacture of heat pumps so that people and, and companies, you know, buildings, uh, residential and business buildings that are currently being heated by natural gas or by oil, there's very few heated by coal anymore, can convert over to electricity at the same time that we are aggressively converting our electric grid off fossil fuels and onto renewable energies. So just, just to fill you in on all that. Also, the other story I wanted to share with you, which I think is just extraordinary, and then I'll pick up your phone calls, is this piece. There's a summary of it on commondreams.org titled, Putin Aggression Leads to Surge in Electrical Vehicle Progress in Europe. And Sean Goulding Carroll at youractive.com points out, he asked if Europe could do something to defund the war, right, to defund this uh, effort that Putin is, is conducting right now. And 
One of the main things, it turns out, might be replacing internal combustion engines, gasoline and diesel-powered engines, with electric cars. Now, the European Union has already ratified a plan that would ban the sale of anything except electric cars after 2035. But that's 13 years down the road. So the question is, can they move up that deadline? And there's a discussion about this in, in Europe right now. Uh, slightly over a quarter of all the petroleum consumed in the European Union comes from Russia. And that money is funding the Russian war machine. So uh, the European Parliament just literally, you know, quite recently, in the last month or so, just resolved a, uh, a debate, shall we say, within the EU about how extensively they want to create a framework to recycle batteries so that they don't have to depend on foreign countries for things like lithium and chromium and cobalt, um, that uh, nickel, copper. Uh, and they, they and, and to what extent they're going to subsidize that? And so they just they just put this together. The EU batteries made in the EU are going to be the greenest in the world and the most recyclable, with plans to recover some 90% of the nickel, copper, and cobalt used in them, and 70% of the lithium. Russia, by the way, is one of the world's major lithium uh, producers and exporters to Europe. So where is this going? Well, Ford is planning three new electric passenger vehicles for consumers in Europe within the next two years. And new lines are going to be built in both Germany and Romania. In France, the high price of gasoline is causing consumers to start buying more electric vehicles. Uh, there was a an, kind of an anecdotal story over at France Info. Uh, one man at a dealership uh, tried driving an EV for the first time, and, and then he calculated his fuel costs and saw it would drop from $440 for you know, his average monthly driving of around 1,400 miles, it would drop from $440 down to 60 bucks. Electricity is a lot cheaper, particularly in Europe, than gasoline, but also here in the United States. You know, uh, Louise and I paid pretty much nothing to, to drive our car all around. We went for a nice long drive yesterday. Went out and visited one of our kids and our grandkids. Now, in France, uh, Macron is, who is campaigning for re-election, by the way, which may have something to do with why he keeps trying to insert himself into the situation with Russia. Uh, he recently added a new plank to his platform, his re-election platform, and that is a lease-to-own program that the government will run to make it easier for middle-class consumers to buy electric cars. That's kind of a cool thing. And Tesla has sold, they have sold 309,000 cars in the last, uh, in the fourth quarter of last year alone, 300, over 300,000 cars in the European Union. That's a 71% increase over the previous year. In December, 29% uh, of new car registrations across Europe were plug-in, uh, either, either all electric or plug-in hybrids like the one I have. And in 20, but in the United States last year, only 9% of new car purchases were electric vehicles or PHEVs, the plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. And, uh, you know, I think we need to fix this. <laughs> we need to fix this. If you want to solve the crisis in Ukraine, if you want to diminish the power of Russia's Vladimir Putin, go electric. Now, I realize not everybody in America can do that. So, so let's start something like Macron is you know, proposing in, in France, you know, a lease to own program for electric vehicles or, you know, more subsidies for electric vehicles so that we can make this transition. We have to get this country off its fossil fuel addiction. It is destroying our planet as well as, you know, weakening the international world. By the way, ethicalconsumer.org has a list of boycotts. Ethicalconsumer.org. Tom Harbin here with you. Oh, this is fascinating. There's a piece, uh, this is actually on a Fox News station, so they don't, this legislation, they don't, the sponsors of it are Democrats, and they don't mention the fact that they're Democrats, because it's Fox, right? Actually, it's a Fox 5 station. But it's a fascinating roundup. I, I got the link off the top of Drudge. Two pieces of legislation. The first is called the Gas Rebate Act of 2022. And Lauren Underwood of Illinois, uh, John Larson of Connecticut, and Mike Thompson of California, Democratic uh, members of the House of Representatives, are proposing that everybody in America get $100 a month until the price of gas drops below $4 a gallon. So it's the, the Gas Rebate Act, number one. That would be one way to do it. And this is as the economic impact payments have been phased out. Another one, Peter DeFazio of Oregon, Congressman DeFazio, the guy that you know, Louise and I know well, 
has proposed the Stop Gas Price Gouging Tax and Rebate Act. That bill would create a windfall profit tax on excessive corporate profits and return the revenue to American consumers in the form of a tax rebate. Congressman DeFazio says big oil is foaming at the mouth. After price gouging Americans in 2021 to make record profits, big oil is now reaping the benefits of Putin's price hike. My legislation would tax big oil's excess profits in 2022 and return the revenue back to Americans. Meanwhile, in California, Democratic state lawmakers announced a $400 gas rebate proposal for every taxpayer. That would use $9 billion of that state's budget surplus. Yes, it's a blue state. They have a budget surplus, which is expected to cover the $0.51 cent per gallon gas tax for a full year. And in Connecticut, Ned Lamont, another Democrat, has called for a holiday from the state's $0.25 cent per gallon gas tax, starting as soon as possible and lasting at least through the end of June. Although Republicans in the legislature say this is political theater. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. So keep that on your, uh, you know, on your radar screen. Uh, picking up your phone calls here, John in Chicago. Hey, John, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Um, i got a question for you. Other than Ukraine, uh, the biggest concern I've got is climate change. And I don't see any legislation happening with a guy like Joe Manchin, who's financially tied to the West Virginia coal companies. Why can't the federal government or a gentleman, a billionaire like Tom Steyer, purchase these coal companies, literally shut them down, take the product off the market, transition the workers to green jobs? I got to believe the cost of purchasing the coal companies, I know it's billions, maybe hundreds of billions, is far less than the cost that climate change, the, the damage of climate change to our country and around the world. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I, I would suggest that it's not a supply problem, it's a demand problem. That if you shut down the West Virginia, if say you bought up all the coal mines in West Virginia and shut them down, uh, you would just have more, as long as there's coal fired power plants in the United States. And, and other industries that are fired by coal, and that's still going on in some places, uh, you would just have more coal being mined in Wyoming. So, yeah, Wyoming, you know, the, that's the other one. Yeah, so, so the big challenge, and, 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 it, and by the way, coal production is not just limited to those two states. So the, so the big challenge, frankly, I would say, is regulating the burning of coal. In other words, eliminate the demand, and then the supply you know, will dry up because there's no more demand for that supply. Um, so that, that would be the way that I would go about it, John. And the other way, of course, is to, is to provide alternatives uh, to, to energy produced by coal, which would be you know, solar, wind, geothermal, stuff like that. Well, I appreciate it. Okay, thanks yeah, for thank, your comment. Thanks, thanks, John. Good to hear from you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot going on in the world, you know, aside from electoral politics, the war in Ukraine, 
and the deplorable behavior of the Republicans in the hearings of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson. And at the top of the list of things that I'm concerned about is the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, this thing that Donald Trump just completely sabotaged, much to the detriment, in my opinion, of both Iran and the world. So I wanted to find out where we're at on that. Uh, Jamal Abdi is with us. He's the president of NIAC, the National Iranian American Council. The website NIACouncil.org and uh, his Twitter handle NIACouncil or J Abdi, A-B-D-I. Jamal, welcome back to the program. So where are we at with this? What's going on? We are, <clears throat> we are on the precipice of an agreement. Um, there's one issue that remains between the U.S. and Iran to get us all back into the, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, this is after you know the better part of the past year of negotiations and fits and starts uh, to return the U.S. to compliance and, and return the Iran, uh, Iran back into compliance as well, uh, because Iran, of course, uh, began uh, abandoning some of the commitments under the JCPOA to rein in its nuclear program um, after Donald Trump left the left the uh, agreement. So, where we are now is that um, you know there was a a a hiccup a couple of weeks ago when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And um, ironically, it was actually Republicans and folks opposed to diplomacy here in Washington who started to uh, say very, you know, superficially and just complete nonsense, you know, political talking point that because uh, Russia is part of the U.N. Security Council and it was the U.N. Security Council members plus Germany negotiating the deal, uh, the original JCPOA, and the return of the JCPOA, uh, that somehow this was Putin's deal. And any diplomacy that Russia was involved in uh, necessarily meant that it was Vladimir Putin in charge of it. And so Biden was not just negotiating with the evil mullahs in Iran, but also the evil uh, uh, Kremlin regime. Uh, that then, I don't know if Russia got the idea from this or if it was already in the cards, but the hiccup was that Russia then said, you know what, actually, we have additional demands as part of these negotiations because we want to ensure that the sanctions being imposed on Russia uh, uh, do not prevent us from enjoying the benefits of this nuclear agreement where Iran is supposed to be reintegrated with the global economy. And so there, there, was, there were delays there. It was overcome. The, the Russians and the Iranians reached a agreement that Russia was going to back down from these additional uh, demands. And so we thought we were at the finish line. Then lo and behold, there is one remaining issue uh, in order to get this deal signed, where the Iranian side and the U.S. side cannot come to an agreement. And it is over the issue of sanctions imposed by Donald Trump um, for no reason other than to frustrate the ability of any future administration from being able to restore the nuclear deal or enter into to diplomacy with Iran. So Trump imposed these sanctions knowing that uh, and, and saying saying publicly these are being put in place to try to prevent future administrations from getting a deal with Iran. And yet now we're in this position where apparently the Biden administration has um, is it, it, having doubts about how this is going to play politically in the United States and has fears that by lifting some of these sanctions, um, which are, you know, for, you know, ostensibly for terrorism and uh, other actions that are going to be portrayed really you know, badly uh, politically here in Washington. But now Biden is actually seemingly playing into the hands of the Trump administration and saying, you know what, the political costs here may be too great. Um, so we're not sure we want to lift these sanctions and we need something better from Iran in order to do so. And so that's where things lie right now. They're negotiating um, how to remove Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps from the U.S. foreign terrorist organization list, which is a a terrorism list not reserved for state actors, but for the first time was applied to Iran's Revolutionary Guard, which functions as its military and uh, a big player also within its economy. Um, and, and, and so now in order to take off these completely symbolic sanctions, the Biden administration wants Iran to make some commitment uh, to de-escalate in the region, which I think would be a, a great achievement. Uh, but if this is where the nuclear deal dies, to have come this far, have gotten to all of the hurdles that you know were in place to deal with a new Iranian administration coming in midway through the talks, uh, to deal with the Russian obstruction, and to now have it die at this point would just be a complete tragedy. And so 
I'm still hopeful that there's going to be a resolution, um, but we are now in the middle of Iran's you know, biggest holiday of the year, the, the new year, Nowruz, and so the talks are stalled as we, we wait for the two sides to try to broker an agreement around this terrorism so, designation. So, Jamal, uh, you didn't say this. I'm imagining it. But tell me if my imagination is uh, is close to what you know what the Biden administration is afraid of. Uh, in order to in, in order to get to where we need to go, the Biden administration does away with the sanctions on the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard that Trump put into place. Immediately, Republicans start squealing that Biden is essentially saying. Okay, Iran, go ahead and attack Israel and or go ahead and attack your other neighbors in the region. Uh, Saudi Arabia also you know, has a dog in this fight. And it will get demagogued, even though the, the, the sanctions were largely meaningless, it'll get demagogued to the point that the political harm to the Biden administration and to and to America generally is so great that it's not worth the deal. Is that is that essentially what you're saying? That that is the political context we're we're now dealing with, and Republicans are already saying this, and even some Democrats um, really? who are who are backed by APAC or you know APAC's uh, APAC formed this you know progressive organization to try to claw back some of the support they lost from Democrats when they went after Obama um, during the first nuclear deal. But yes, this is the main political debate right now. Republicans and some Democrats saying. Don't lift these this this foreign terrorist organization sanction on IRGC. It's completely the wrong message, and obviously, you know, misstating the facts. The fact is, the Revolutionary Guard will still be designated as a SDGT, a specially designated global terrorist group, which is how you you deal with state actors. Right. Um, so, there, so there's no practical implications for this. It's completely symbolic, and yet this is exactly where the concern is that this is going to be demagogued and not just. You know, Republicans and, and, and opponents will use this to weaken public support for the deal. But then if there is some flashpoint, if there is a um, uh, an attack that uh, on a on a, on a you know, any rock that is linked to the IRGC or anything that happens in the region that is linked to the IRGC, then would be laid at the foot of the Biden administration. See, this is your fault uh, right. because you took them off the terrorist list. You know, notwithstanding the fact that the IRGC has completely escalated under the Trump sanctions and under the maximum pressure. So the actual, you know, what's actually happened on the happening on the ground is completely divorced from this this political debate. I would assume that it would be in the interest of uh, the uh, to, to broaden this out beyond just Israel, uh, because, you know, Iran has, you know, another big enemy with Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries in the region. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, that the way to, uh, to, to I, I guess my question would be, um, wouldn't it be in the best interest of all of those anti-Iran countries for Iran to stop building nuclear weapons? What am I missing here? Why would, why, why would, why would the threat of those countries blaming Biden for, you know, uh, being soft or whatever, uh, why, why, why is that a potent threat? Look, this is this is all kabuki theater. Um, we're not talking about what these. What so it's not a potent threat of Israel blaming us or of Saudi Arabia blaming us. It's a potent threat of some Republican who's trying to get into the White House blaming Biden specifically. Well, so it, it's that it is also the you know regional partners of the United States um, pushing putting pressure on the Biden administration, and I do think it's important to note. Saudi Arabia and Iran, you know, you, you look at the tensions in the region and the, you know, the, the attacks that have happened, getting Iran and Saudi Arabia to the negotiating table to talk about regional de-escalation uh, would be a coup. Like, this is mm. exactly where we wanted things to go. And this is, this is if there is a JCPOA, those talks will uh, recommence. Uh, so this actually paves the path for that. The problem here is not that Israel or the Saudis um, – are truly concerned, I don't think, about, I mean, they don't want any, a nuclear Iran, obviously, but a lot of the opposition to this deal that the entire, you know, the Israeli security establishment all has, has been coming out and saying it was a horrible mistake for Netanyahu to push Trump to exit the deal. We're now in such a worse security position. Um, but 
the reason that all of these states are opposed to this is not because of the nuclear deal. It's not because of the regional stuff. There's a fear that the United States is going to uh, broker an agreement with Iran that begins to bring Iran uh, in from the shadows and enables the United States to begin to leave the region and leave it to the actors within the region to sort through these issues. Uh, and there's a fear that on the Israeli and the Saudi side that they would be abandoned by the U.S. and actually have to deal with Iran um, as, you know, as peers rather than under the protection. Is of that the a legitimate States. fear? It's, it's a legitimate fear if if these governments do not want to uh, uh, make, you know, uh, concessions on on legitimate issues and actually strike deals so that they can live in the same neighborhood together. They are clinging to the status quo right. that is untenable, that is under the U.S. shield, that enables this authoritarianism. And so th- this this now needs to come to a head. Uh, and I think there's a aversion to any sort of change on those grounds and just not the political will to to embark on that. Right. Is it's there changed it- a little under Trump, though, because Trump demonstrated that the U.S. will go into the, you know, will will do occasional, you know, military action and things like that. But when it came close to actually, you know, a real military confrontation with Iran, Trump did back down and sent a signal, I think, to to particularly the Persian Gulf states that, you know, the U.S. is not going to fight this war for you. So you may need to start acting as responsible actors and dealing with some of these issues through diplomatic engagement with Iran if you don't want to be fighting that war. Are we seeing evidence of that? Well, that's that's, I think, why we have these Saudi Iran talks that that started last year and have been paused while the JCPOA talks continue and which will restart after there is a deal. Fascinating stuff. I I know a lot now that I didn't know before. Jamal Abdi, president of NIAC, the National Iranian American Council, NIA Council dot org. Jay Abdi or NIA Council on Twitter. Uh, Jamal, thank you. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Always great talking with you. And, And and like I said, I learned a lot. Smokey in Richmond, Virginia. Hey, Smokey, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the uh, Iran nuclear talks that are going on right now. Yeah. And a a situation that's a little bit concerning to me is uh, apparently we have the Russians in some kind of a role mediating the talks between us and Iran. Yes, they were always part of A little bit of a risky that seems like a little bit of a risky proposition to me in light of everything that's going on. So I just wanted to know what you thought about that. I think that Russia has a vested interest in Iran not becoming a nuclear power just like we do, number one. Number two, Iran has aligned themselves far more closely with Russia than, the, than with the United States, uh, particularly since the, the Carter administration, you know, since the fall of the Shah. And so Russia has some what would you call it, uh, not just you know, moral and legal power, but uh, diplomatic power, I guess you could call it, in Iran. And you know, just because Russia is pursuing an insane war in Ukraine doesn't mean that absolutely everything they do is totally nuts or wrong or we should abandon. I think that to the extent that we can keep Russia in the deal with Iran, we should. That said, what I'm reading is that it's not going well. The negotiations are not going well, that Iran is looking at the fact that Ukraine gave up 1,900 nuclear weapons in 1994 in exchange for a guarantee from Russia of territorial integrity. And uh, obviously that's not working out as planned. This was the Budapest Memorandum of 1994. And so Iran is looking at that going, uh, maybe we don't really want to get rid of our nuclear weapons. So I'm not real optimistic about this, in large part because of what Russia just did. But, but if we can keep them at the table, I, I'm not opposed to that. Smokey, thanks for the call. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Angela in Medford, Oregon. Hey, Angela, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I wanted to talk to you about truth in media. And I'm, I'm of the belief that there has to be a minimum standard of truth. 
And that's based on a preponderance of evidence. So even gravity is a theory, right? And I remember when I was growing up and they had things like National Enquirer and on the front page was Bat Boy and in big letters on the corner it said for entertainment purposes only. Right. And I'm wondering like, yeah, I'm wondering like, there. I, I, I understand the concern. I'm not talking about like censoring, you know, the Fox News or, or whatever, but I'm, I'm hoping to seed in your your to seed anywhere the idea that there has to be a minimum standard of truth in media and we have to know how to navigate Canada has an agency like that the United Kingdom has an agency like that and that's why there's no Fox News in Canada although they there has been recently started a new right-wing channel there um, but they said no no to Fox News we don't we not only don't have that but because of the First Amendment Basically, uh, anybody can say anything. I mean, it, take the case back of uh, the RGBH case uh, from the Fox Channel down in, in uh, I believe it was in Orlando, Florida. It was somewhere in Florida. And this was back around 2002, 2003. I, we had uh, uh, Jane Aker and Steve Wilson was the married couple who were reporters for this Fox television station. And the Fox station asked them to go out and do a story about whether this brand new RGBH, recombinant bovine growth hormone, this hormone that was artificially made, that was being injected into cows to cause them to make more milk, whether that was ending up in the milk, and if it was ending up in the milk, what impact it may have on humans. And so they went out and they did this story and they concluded that yes, it is showing up in the milk, and no, it may not be good for humans. And Fox made them rewrite that story. This, uh, this Fox station made them rewrite that story over 30 times to the point where it just turned into a, basically a commercial for Monsanto. And at that point, Aker and Wilson said, we're not going to rewrite it anymore. We're not going to lie to people about this. And they were fired. They sued for wrongful termination. And a jury of their peers, a jury of six people in Florida, awarded them a quarter of a million dollars in, in, as a settlement for wrongful termination from that TV station. That Fox station appealed that to the, you know, to, the, to, the, to the appeals court, and the appeals court ruled that under the First Amendment, a television station has no obligation to tell the truth, and, and under the, the, the employment laws that we have in the United States, a, a news outlet may force their reporters to lie to people in the news because of the First Amendment, uh, you know, by and large because of the First Amendment. That ruling stands. That's the law of the land right now, uh, Angela. So I don't see how we're going to get around that. That was horribly depressing. <laughs> I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to depress you, but you know we've got to come up with another alternative because that's that's where it's at right now. Um, Angela, thanks for the call. I share your concerns. I just don't have an easy answer for it. We'll be right back. Other than more competition, you know, breaking up giant media monopolies. Competition seems to be a good thing. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I was watching the uh, decarbonization uh, thing earlier in the hour. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned about the magnetic levitation before. And this is like the time to do the build back better with the young graduates from, you know, Stanfield. Stanfield. Why is not so yeah. pushed really, yeah, so pushed really aggressively in this country? You're talking about maglev, magnetic levitation trains? Exactly, yep, yep. I mean, there's nothing magic about maglev. It's just an electric train. It's more efficient than other kinds of trains because there's no friction or very, you know, just the friction of air. Right, but, but it's not like really pushed in this, uh, you know, engineering industry or the transportation industry why is that yeah. pushed so strongly i don't know it's a good country. question i mean they've, they've got some substantial maglev trains in in asia china and japan yeah, yeah. and europe and germany oh really i i didn't know that they were using them in europe as well yep huh. they have test trucks too Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been on the high-speed trains, you know, all over Europe. I've been on high-speed trains in in uh, in South Korea and in Japan as well. Um, I'm not sure I've ever been on a maglev train, though. Uh, that would be fascinating. Uh, apparently, they're just like whisper quiet because you know they're floating on a, a sixteenth of an inch of air, basically. Yes, and then this guy did this ninety years ago, 1933. Mm -hmm. Guy named Herman Kemper. 
he called monorail vehicle with no wheels attached. Right, right. Well, there's. Yeah, I, I think there might be one for one of the airports or maybe Disney World. Although maybe that has wheels. Maybe that's not maglev. I've I've been on one of them that kind of looked like it was, but you know, I I just don't know. Johan, I I I don't know why it's not more popular or why why it's not more widespread. Uh, I think a bigger question for America right now is why do we have such crappy mass transportation and why don't we make a bigger investment in it? I mean, you know, when when they privatized the rail tracks back back in the day, uh, now Amtrak can't get a decent rail track up and down the Northeast Corridor. You've got trains that are capable of going 150 miles an hour and they're they're maxed out at 70 and 80 miles an hour because the rails are so bad. Um, you know, the first yeah, thing you've got to have yeah. for, for, for a high-speed train is good rail. And this is a problem literally all across the United States. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that so, mon- so much of the rail stock, in, in fact, maybe all of the rail stock across the United States has been privatized. It's no longer owned by the government, even though the government right. paid to build it in the first place. I mean, that was, you know, the Golden Spike and Abraham Lincoln in, in uh, what was it, 1850? I forget the year, but... Uh, in the 1850s, when they, or the 1860s, rather, when they had the, uh, you know, when the east, the railroad from the east and the railroad from the west met in the middle of the country. And uh, uh, Sanderson was the guy. He was there to drive the Golden Spike. He was the railroad's attorney who argued the uh, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad case before the United States Supreme Court in 1886. And he's in that picture, that, that golden strike. Uh, when I described him in my book on equal protection, that's how I knew what he looked like, because he was in that picture. But I don't think that we've had you know, significant public works since then uh, of that type of mass transit. And we really need them. Uh, Johan, spot on. Thanks a lot for the call. I'll be back with you in just a second. Get ready for the biggest purge ever. This is uh, this on top of the Supreme Court. It's just the news right now is just so bizarre coming out of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court yesterday, the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court issued a ruling with no public argument. And no argument whatsoever, as far as anybody can tell. They, they didn't invite the lawyers in to argue this before the Supreme Court. They just took some paperwork from some right wing groups. And they said, okay, that's it. The Wisconsin governor wants maps, wants a Wisconsin map that uh, is, you know, that reflects what we believe is, you know, an honest statement of, of how things are in Wisconsin. And, uh, and, and the, the, these, conser- these six conservatives on the Supreme Court said, no, you can't have your own map. I mean, this is, this is, this is bizarre. Um, John Nichols pointed out that Sonis Sotomayor described the majority's ruling as unprecedented. Um, this is what she said. This court's intervention today is not only extraordinary, but also unnecessary. The Wisconsin Supreme Court rightly preserved the possibility that an appropriate plaintiff could bring an equal protection or VRA change in the proper form. I would allow that process to unfold Mondaire Jones, the Democrat from New York in the House, called it lawless. He said the far-right Supreme Court is so hostile to black political power that it reversed its own precedent from earlier this year to overturn Wisconsin maps, creating a new majority-minority district. So here's, here's, here's what happened. But basically, earlier in the year, the Supreme Court said, mm, yeah, it's fine if the Republicans want to do away with a couple of majority black districts. No problem with that. Now they're saying, but you can't create a majority black district in Wisconsin because we said so. I mean, you know, the, the argument is that it's too close to the election. But, you know, come on, this, this, is, this is an absolutely shocking one. And uh, the, the Slate's uh, Mark Joseph Stern said this is absolutely shocking. UV Irvine Professor Rick Hansen called it bizarre on so many levels. And uh, six weeks ago, they blocked a lower federal court ruling ordering Alabama to redraw its congressional maps to, in order to create a second con- black congressional district. They blocked that, right? A federal court ruled that Alabama should have this second black congressional district. The Supreme Court blocked it. Brett Kavanaugh wrote the thing, the court order. And now they've blocked another black district in Wisconsin. That's what this is all about.
thank you for being with us today. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, who put so much work into this program. She is uh, just, I'm telling you, this program is Louise's as much as it is mine. And Sean Taylor and Nate Atwell, who are here full time, and, and, and Jamie Holly and J Joyce the Hammer Nance, who's answering your phones. Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Sprouse, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Al Gorilla Rhythm, <laughs> Connor Arroyo, and Carne Verde. Thank you so much to all of you for helping make this program work. We'll see you on Monday. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.